Hello and welcome to The Punt, a monthly show brought to you by The 42 and William Hill that looks ahead to the major Irish sporting events of every month at home and abroad. Please gamble responsibly and for more information you can visit dunlewy.net. My name is Gavin Cooney. I am joined as ever by Gavin Casey. Hi Gav. Hey Gav, how are you? Not too bad at all. We will be looking ahead to November's Soccer Internationals with Johnny Ward later in the show. But first of all, our attention switches to Saturday night in Manchester, where Katie Taylor will defend her undisputed world lightweight crown against Miriam Gutierrez of Spain. Joining us, joining us to look ahead to that fight is Kathleen McNamee of ESPN. Kathleen, thanks for joining us. Uh, can I get a hype rating out of 10 for this fight, please? Oh, I think it has to go for a full 10 out of 10. I'm very excited about it. I mean, like, Kate, it's Katie Taylor. She is one of our best exports. We have to get excited. It's someone that she hasn't come up against before, I think. Am I right in saying that, Gavin? Yeah. So it's like a whole new scene for her. And I just think it's exciting. You know, it's the first time ever that they've had a triple header of women's fights being shown on BT, they announced this afternoon that it's going to be free to air. So it means that literally everyone's going to get the opportunity to see it. So I'm very excited personally. Mm. And Gav, can, just before we get into talking about the fight itself, we might talk a little bit about Katie generally. So this is pro fight number 17. Is this pro career going better than expected or is it everything pretty much been on par with what Katie might have, might have expected so far? I think... There are two ways of looking at it. If you looked at how successful she's been in the ring or how successfully it has gone in the ring, it's actually probably been a little bit harder than a lot of us would have expected, if not Katie herself, in that those two fights with Delphine Pursun were razor tied. I thought the second one, she won fairly conclusively and put the rivalry to bed. The first one, I didn't even think she won. I added a draw both in New York um, in the arena and when I rewatched it and that was a fight that I really didn't anticipate her losing, and she nearly did. And that was probably a wake-up call uh, to the level of quality that is out there in her division when you get to the very, very top echelon of it. And it completely changed the perception of Taylor's career and the narrative surrounding it, that it was almost a, a pointless pursuit, that she was just leagues ahead of everybody in and around her weight class and that nobody would ever lay a glove on her. Um, and, and I think it made it a lot more exciting as well going forward. But um, if you look at then like how her professional career has managed to kind of create or become a catalyst in this seismic culture shift within boxing overall, I think it's exceeded her while there's expectations and exceeded my own as a, a journalist who writes about boxing. I couldn't have imagined really her having the cultural impact that she has managed to have on the wider sport in the space of only four years. I knew that people would generally like her um, because she's, she's a nice human being and she can fight. Like Aesthetically, it looks good when she fights if you're into that kind of thing. Um, so that I always kind of felt would work in her favor, but I, I really didn't envisage her ability to transcend translating to other countries, to either side of Ireland, across the Atlantic, across the Irish Sea, and people in the UK and America especially are beginning to see what we have seen for the past 15 or so years. Mm. Kathleen, we know the transformative effect that Katie had on amateur boxing. Like, it wouldn't be in the Olympics without her. Like, can I get your take on what Gavin said there? Have in, has there been, in your opinion, a transformative effect on female pro boxing and possibly female pro sport. I think so, definitely. I mean, today you had uh, Anthony Joshua saying, you know, she's phenomenal. She has changed boxing, like the face of boxing for forever. You know, he's not calling out a lot of other people and saying those sort of things. And I think what she has managed, she's been so smart all the way along. And the fact that, you know, she went to someone like Eddie Hearn, who is very much like he's, he doesn't do things just because, you know, he does them because there's a business there he does it because he's going to make money from it and he does things completely so like he's not going to half market her he is going to bring her to different countries he's going to say this is my top boxer this is why you should know her name and I think that was always a very clever move from like her and her team to go to someone who's going to give her that sort of exposure and um, it's something I say a lot about like pro women like the people who are kind of higher up in the sense that 
if you take the like in England in the last while, there's been a lot of talk about the US stars that have come when they pass to the ball to someone. So when Alex Morgan passes the ball to Ashley Neville on the Spurs team and she scores, suddenly everyone knows Ashley Neville's name. And I think like Katie Taylor has kind of had that effect on boxing. You know, we've seen it with if you say Delphine Persoon to like most people in Ireland a couple of years ago, they probably wouldn't have had a clue who you were talking about. But over the last couple of like the last year or so, she's become almost like a pantomime villain to a lot of Irish people who are like, who who is this person who like started this controversy over our Katie? And I think that's the effect that Katie Taylor has had. You know, she's gone down the right path, but she's also carried a lot of people with her because every time she has a fight people are like oh who is this person she's coming up against what is going to happen is this someone that could take on Kaylee or Katie um so I think that has been really important for her and also for the sport in general and of course like if whenever you see a woman being successful on that sort of platform it's going to have a knock-on effect to loads of other sports as well um I think like for me Katie Taylor was kind of the first woman I remember being like super successful in my lifetime the one who started like attracting attention to other sports and I think because she has that connection as well to football in her like earlier career it also it piques her that interest in other people being like oh Katie Taylor played for that team who did she play with you know oh I remember seeing that player used to play with Katie Taylor you know it's like you I think it was Andy Lee who said like it's unquantifiable the effect Katie Taylor has had on sport in Ireland um, and I think that's the only way you can really look at it because her name associated to anything just immediately piques people's interest whether they're interested in sport or boxing. Mm. And Gav like Kathleen talks about the unquantifiable, unquantifiable impact she's had on women's sport in Ireland possibly the UK and further abroad as well because when you look at Sky Sports do their ads for women's sport always Katie's face at the at the top of the ad yeah I think she's becoming a, a champion for the UK as well as Ireland which I've written about in the past and a lot of people kind of see a headline and think oh, what are you talking about are you are you giving Katie away to the Brits I was like just gonna say how their, do you feel about that after all of their attempts to claim her uh, nefarious attempts at that well her, her father is English first and foremost so she's kind of half British isn't she um but no what I mean really is that they they well sports fans in the uk particularly female sports fans at the moment do celebrate her in a, a similar way to the way in which she's been celebrated in ireland for the past decade and more i've been at plenty of i've been at most of her pro fights i've been like privileged to cover them and in the uk especially there's a real there is a, a feeling of something special going on when she's either you know, near the top of a bill or just quite prominent on a on a show and you're at a, a public workout where the fighters just go into the ring and hit the pads with their trainers for 15 minutes and do a bit of media afterwards and you've got maybe 100, 150 people packed into this hotel lobby behind a ribbon or rope uh, just to see Katie Taylor. And so many of them are young girls from Manchester, Stoke, <laughs> you know, like you go around, like they're all from different parts of, of the UK, not just England. Um, and even when she finishes and she's coming down the stairs, like I remember in Manchester, there were there was just this clamor for her autograph from again young kids and not only girls. I mean, like let's be honest, it was predominantly girls, but there are loads of guys as well, young guys that are looking at her because they see her on Sky Sports, they see her on these ads to which you allude. Uh, they're going to see her this weekend, literally headlining on prime time, where they're probably more accustomed or people are more accustomed to seeing. Big, big names like Anthony Joshua and, and renowned or uh, noteworthy male names filling that same slot. Um, I think, like, as Kathleen was saying, her impact on, on Irish sport is unquantifiable. And, uh, and Andy Lee made that point as well. But if you, I, I think her impact on women's professional boxing globally is almost quantifiable in that you can look at the purses that women were earning. Uh, only four years ago, even Katie herself, when she sent a DM to Eddie Hearn on a whim to see if he'd promote her and he invited her over for a meeting. I think she brought Brian Pede was with her at the time as a kind of a, a third party manager, managerial representative. Um, they, well, Hearn proposed at the time that Taylor would fight, I think, six times under Matron's banner to begin with and that she'd earn £60,000 for those six fights. 
And Brian Peters uh, has been in the game long enough to know a bomb deal when he sees one. So he said, you know what, let's take it one fight at a time. They shook hands and said one fight at a time. They didn't sign a, a contract, promotional contract for about two years, as far as I'm aware. And I remember in her sixth fight, I think it was, against Jessica McCaskill, where she headlined on Sky Sports for the first time, albeit midweek uh, on a Wednesday night in York Hall, speaking to Peters and Taylor's very private about her finances, as any anyone has the right to be. It, it's a little bit less commonplace in boxing, but she doesn't really divulge her, her purses. So we were kind of like hinting at Peters, just trying, jabbing at him to see, like, would he give us any indication as to what she earned? And somebody asked him, like, is it, are we into six-figure territory at least? So like 100K, 120K. And he's like, we're way beyond that. <laughs> and that was six fights in. And if you look at her 16th fight against Delphine pursuing the rematch, as far as I'm aware, that would have been worth close enough to 1.5 million uh, dollars to her. I think dollars um, to her because she commands attention now. Like she's, uh, and as much as people might um, might feel queasy when you refer to Taylor in these terms, she is a, a commercial entity now, and like that mm. is a massive part of establishing yourself as a name in, in professional boxing. You you have to become commercial entity in order to make proper money and she's the highest earning female boxer on the planet by a significant margin if you look at the top 10 highest earning female athletes on the planet alex morgan i think is 10th and she takes in like around 4.2 4.5 million dollars a year like if taylor was to fight three times in a year she'd surpass that and if you add commercial revenue as well she's probably already ahead of that so um She's, she's doing okay. And mm. the, the knock-on impact of that is that her opponents also earn tenfold more, 10, 20 times more than they would have earned without her. Mm. Kathleen, talk to me about the significance of Katie headlining a triple bill on Sky Sports on a Saturday night. That's massive. I mean, it's like prime time for watching. Um, it's never happened before. The fact that, you know, she's not just being latched on to the end of a big man's bill is great. You know, <laughs> I think it was, uh, when you wrote about it last year when she was on and the stadium was like two thirds full, even though she was like third from the end. Again, that's the sort of like crowd that she attracts. But this time it's all her. Obviously, because of the whole coronavirus pandemic, there's not going to be a crowd this time. So it's like a little bit of a different setup. But to get women's sport, it, any sort of women's sport on that sort of prime slot and for it to be put out and advertised the way it has been, you know, like I've seen, I would have the TV on like most days just for watching things for work and it's literally it's on it's like constant reminders that it's happening and it's all the other names on the bill as well are coming up and it's kind of tying into what we were saying there about bringing other people up with her um and we always like it's the thing that always comes up with women's sport and like I'm probably sick of saying it as much as other people are sick of hearing it unless people see it they're not going to engage with it they're not going to be interested in it so the fact that they are giving it this prime slot, it means that like more people are going to be exposed to the Katie Taylor brand. More people are going to be interested in seeing her future fights. They're going to be interested. They'll probably tune in for the other fights as well. Catch a couple of them. They'll be talking about the other fights while they're building up to Katie's and they'll be like, huh, that's really interesting. Maybe I should follow this a bit more. Um, so it's massive and it's so good to see that like it's an Irish sports star headlining this sort of event. Like it's mm. absolutely class. It's, you think of all the girls sitting at home and like young boys as well. There's one thing I always notice about like crowds for women's sports events. Yeah, I went to a couple of women's super league games over in London and things. The crowds are much more even than they are, I find, for like men's games. Um, and you even see it when like Katie Taylor comes home and there's a big event in Bray or whatever newspapers and the media tend to like talk to the young girls because obviously it's such a big moment for them but like if you actually look at the crowd everyone is there you know it's men women children grandparents um so I think the fact that this like this is they're able to see their hero on the tv they're able to see her hopefully perform excellently and I mean like Katie Taylor is just fun to watch that's the thing like that's why she is so successful and good at what she does because it's just pleasurable to watch her box um well at least we hope that's how it's going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, men, women, children, grandchildren, and Shane Ross usually at these fights as well. <laughs> exactly. It's actually as you, Gaffing, as you were saying at the top, like it is going to be hard to miss this. You know, it's it's on 
So Sky Sports are putting it on Sky Sports Mix, which is their free-to-air channel. It's on their YouTube, on their Facebook, and also on their website as well. So it will be pretty easy to access. Gav, it's against Miriam Gutierrez. What, what can you tell us about her? She's 38. She's from Spain. And she's quite good, Gav. Yeah. Um, okay. And, uh, like, I guess my initial reaction when the fight was confirmed was that, okay, it's a fight that Taylor kind of just needs to get out of the way. She's WBA mandatory challenger. And you because Taylor holds all four major belts it means that she has to sort of satisfy uh, the mandatory demands as in there'll always be a number one challenger that each sanctioning body will want you to face at some point and if you delay for too long or if you just refuse because you're pursuing other avenues then you'll be stripped of that belt and if somebody else holds one of those belts then you can argue you're a disputed champion at, the, at that time you don't hold all of the marbles so there's a little bit of chess going on there and, and a lot of politics and um, for that reason, they've taken this fight, I think, as well, on the back of her rematch with Pursuit, which doesn't feel like it was that long ago. Uh, it, it's a, a stylistically suitable fight in that, as much as Taylor was saying on a conference earlier today, that she didn't really take, ship any damage in that Pursuit fight. Like she did. Like it was, it was a rough enough night, even though she boxed extremely well. You're never going to have an easy night against Delphine Pursuit, whereas Gutierrez is really a boxer rather than a fighter. Um, she is slick, she's smooth, good footwork, nice combinations, decent speed. Like fundamentally, she's very sound. The problem for her, I guess, is that that actually plays entirely into Taylor's hands. Like all of the things that Gutierrez does, Taylor does probably twice as well. And the success that opponents have had against Taylor, when you look at McCaskill in that sixth fight in, in your call in 2017, and when you look at the two pursuit fights, you have to roughhouse you ha you have to become violent like brawlers and rugged opponents have done better well they're the only fighters who've done well against taylor to any extent and i don't know that gutierrez has that in her um it's interesting like gutierrez is, is 38 as i said but taylor is one of her heroes taylor is four years younger than her um and just talking about the Taylor's wider impact or, or Taylor's impact on boxing in a wider context. For Gutierrez, you know, this is like something she could not have conceived of. Even two years ago, three years ago, not to mind four years ago when Taylor turned pro, the idea that she's, she herself is headlining on Sky Sports and she's coming from Spain fighting this all-time great Irish athlete, all-time great boxer, amateur and professional. Um, arguably, well, to my mind, there is no argument if she is the pound for pound number one female boxer on the planet at the moment. And she's going to be well well paid to do so as well. Um, it's, it's, that's, again, just another signifier of, of Taylor's sort of impact on the sport. And for Gutierrez, she is this remarkable story, at times a, a dark story. She's a survivor of domestic abuse. And, uh, you know, I think people can read into that story a little bit more. It's kind of not for me to to relay it. It's her story, but it's it's a bit of a fairy tale for her as well. She's not she's obviously not going to lose either. You know, mm -hmm. like people look at Taylor now as being susceptible, being beatable because Pursuit arguably beat her the first time. And uh, listen, t Taylor's not getting any younger either at thirty four. So, uh, do you, do you think that that's part of Katie's uh, thinking going into this fight that she feels she is something to prove even if like she did get bruised against uh, against Delphine Pursuit no I, I, I like she's very robotic and systematic in how she approaches these fights and I don't like I honestly don't think she pays great heed to who's standing in front of her of course the Pursuit rematch in that it was her first rematch and the first fight was so contentious I'm sure would have meant more to her on some level or she would have been more nervous even more focused if it's remotely possible but I don't think she's going into this fight thinking that she has anything to prove because I think she feels herself she proved enough in the last one. Uh, or at least she has no more to prove now than she does every time she steps into the ring. And what she might be looking at doing is making a bit of a statement. It's been a, it's been a while since she had a, a stoppage in a world title fight, um, going back to the Rose Volante fight in Philadelphia two years ago, two and a half years ago. God, it's like it's all sort of rolled into one now mm -hmm. but um and and this is a massive platform for her as, as Kathleen has alluded to so make a bit of a statement stop 
Gutierrez halfway through the fight do it looking well, looking spectacularly, and suddenly you're a viral clip, and that actually is a massive part of marketing yourself as a, a professional sports person, not to mention a professional boxer in this day mm. and age. So I think she might look at it as an opportunity to do that, um, but that might be underselling Gutierrez, who, as I said, like is fundamentally decent and won't won't be easy read on. Gav, I'm now going to ask you what you think is going to happen, but what I really mean is how am I going to make a few quid out of it? Yeah, I. Uh, it's difficult to find markets at the moment for method of victory, which would be usually what I'd look for in a fight. So it's not really worth putting your money on Taylor to win in that she's 33 to 1 on. So I'd suggest to people to keep their eyes on uh, William Hill and the three of the week, and hopefully some markets will open up. And when they do... I'd look at probably alternative round betting, it's called, and look at backing Taylor to win by stoppage from rounds five to ten. I, I'm trying to think. Like, I'm no bookmaker myself. I'd imagine the odds would be around two to one or something like that. And maybe I'm totally wrong there. But that's what I'd be looking at. It's, it's hard to put your finger on where exactly it will end. And it might not end at all. But if you were looking to make money, I think Taylor will get the stoppage personally. And I think it'll be in the second half of the fight when she has a chance to really make her mark on Gutierrez. So that's what I'd be looking at. Uh, rounds five to ten. Or if you're feeling a little bit more uh, confident, maybe back yourself with that three-round gap uh, or three-round combination. So seven to ten, something like that. Eight to ten even. Mm. Kathleen, from my uh, very amateur seat here, it feels to me like Katie is running out of worlds to conquer. Like, What would you like to see from her either do next or, or achieve by the time she finally hangs up her gloves. Like, that's the thing with Katie Taylor is every time I think she has kind of achieved what she has to, she goes and she does something completely different. I mean, for me, in some ways, I'm almost more interested in what she starts to do once she's finished fighting. Um, because I think, you know, you have someone like Katie Taylor in your corner. If she start, if she goes into coaching, if she starts to like her own academy like what what can she do with the world of like women's boxing then and um, because realistically she's going to keep pushing herself as a professional she's going to keep pushing it in the ring but I think that what in one of the ways I think sometimes we fall down with Katie Taylor is that we just expect her to win we always expect her to be the best person and we almost don't pay attention to some of her fights because we're like oh well, this is Katie fighting like she'll just do the job and we'll all celebrate when she comes home um a la Shane Ross as you kind of pointed out earlier <laughs> um so for me I'm actually that's where I'm really excited to see what Katie Taylor does next is how she uses what she has built over the next couple of years and how she, because the other thing with Katie Taylor in the position she's in at the moment is that she's getting such good commercial experience on how to like market herself on how to be in that world you know how will she use that experience to bring up other Irish fighters in the next couple of generations and to like so that someday Eddie Hearn is sitting there with like his Rolodex of Irish fighters going hmm which woman shall I choose for my next headliner that's what I'm kind of interested to see for the next couple of years. Mm. We'll round out by asking you your prediction. I think I have to go with Katie Taylor. I mean, probably unsurprisingly. I, I was I was kind of thinking more round than Victor, but oh, uh, I think I think like I'm saying, it'd be nice to see her actually like pull out a sort of show stopping performance and just like end the fight straight off rather than having to go through every round and like take it slowly. Because I think what we are looking for from Katie Taylor now is that entertainment value, and it's something that Eddie Hearn has talked about a lot. You know you want to impress in the world of boxing you need to entertain and so i think that's what i would like to see lovely stuff well kathleen thanks so much for joining us uh myself and gav are going to hang around because johnny ward's coming on the line next to talk about the other great entertainers in our lives stephen kenny's republic of ireland team now turning our attention to football and joining gav and myself as we swap roles is the one and only johnny ward johnny everything's in your end how are you getting on, lads? All good? Super. Thank you very much. Good, good. We were asking Kathleen McNamee, who was on talking with us about Katie Taylor before yourself, what her uh, perception of the hype level was ahead of Taylor's fight this weekend. So can I get a similar reading from you ahead of Ireland's three upcoming international fixtures, beginning with a friendly on Thursday against England? Like, it's Ireland v. England. And, you know, if this game took place during the McCarthy era... Um, 
you know, international friendlies and all that. Uh, but Stephen Kenny's had five games, one goal, and there are still people who might doubt what's going on here. And uh, I'm not one of them, but I, I, I think it's exciting because I think what he said was effectively, you know, it's better off playing this than playing against a kind of a so-called lesser team um, in which we'd probably get a two or three nil win. I think this is a great opportunity for the players. Obviously, Wembley won't have anyone there, but um, you're taking on proper opposition, better than we've faced so far. And as such, I, I'm intrigued by the game. I have to say. Let me bring you in on that, Gav. Would you agree with what Johnny's saying there about taking on significant opposition or with Oman there for the taking as always? <laughs> we have just gotten broken the duck, so to speak, in goal scoring terms, taken a win and, and do done our seeding chances no harm whatsoever. If the answer is oh man, then the question is <laughs> wrong. Uh, no, we're actually right. Like we could have done a was the Mike Bass? Isn't that a scene of Mike Bassett when he like drums up confidence out of the World Cup by playing, feeling England against um, some team of amateurs? I know I'm looking forward to it. You know, obviously Wembley will be empty. It's a chance to test ourselves against proper opposition, like uh, like Johnny said, and it's also a chance to try and maintain our unbeaten record against England, stretching back to 1985. Yeah, it's amazing uh, looking back at that. Well, that run of fixtures, seven games, uh, all of them draws. Ninety-five, <laughs> uh, I think, to be fair, uh, is only a draw. Like, it's a draw with an asterisk next to it. Ireland were 1-0 up when the riots began at Lansdowne Road and the game was officially recorded as a draw as a result of that. That game in 1985, Johnny, is the only game between the two countries in the last 35 years in which one team has scored more than one goal. So are you expecting that pattern to continue or potentially change this weekend with two teams probably playing a little bit differently now than they did in 85. Yeah, if you look back on those games, you know, there were some pretty grim games of football in those. I'm thinking of, uh, despite the fact that they were all valiant draws, and I'm sure Ireland were, you know, were outsiders in all those games. I, I do remember the Lansdowne Road uh, riot. I remember that very well. I was in national school at the time. And, um, you know, Ireland had started the game so well. Uh, it's, 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 we, we, we draw an awful lot of games. You know, we, we don't win many games. We draw an awful lot of games. But I think this should be a little bit different. Um, Certainly, Stephen Kenny's not going to be getting out there to kind of batten down the hatches and get a draw. And there's no reason for England to be playing particularly conservatively either. There's nobody at the game. There's not going to be that tension you might expect. Um, sort of tension referenced uh, by John Delaney in that documentary last night when Ireland plays Scotland so, and so on. Um, but yeah, I think I think it'll be quite open. Um, it's just kind of hard to predict uh, the Irish team in a sense. I, but it's probably less hard to predict how they'll approach the game. And uh, I think this will be fair really entertaining I, I've actually to be honest I found the Ireland games under Kenny generally very enjoyable in relative terms anyway and I think this will be different um, even though it might be a draw yeah Gav the interesting <laughs> dynamic to this <laughs> very... after all that it's going to be a draw <laughs> yeah, let's, let, let's be honest about it I mean we can wrap here it's going to be a draw but there are two, <laughs> there are two fixtures afterwards Gav which are competitive in name at least and uh, it still feels as though this England game is the one that understandably probably is the game that mo people are most uh, feverishly anticipating right now I think so yeah uh, but what I'm asking you is we know like we know the Nations League games do matter it's just that why does it feel like they don't at this point and to what extent do they matter when we look at things like seedings uh, ahead of World Cup qualifying and so on yeah, like all the games matter in the sense that all the games will affect the World Cup seedings. Like at the moment, we're we are second seed, but we're in there by like a cigarette paper margin. Like I think it's like a single point in the ranking. So, like it's too hard to predict what results we need where. We just need to win as many games as possible. Uh, there's ranking points on offer for the England friendly, but they're fewer than the Nations League games because it's a non-competitive game. So it matters from that point of view. The Nations League games matters because we like, we don't want to be relegated to League C. Just purely like. I hopefully, fingers crossed, by the time the next Nations League comes around, we'll be playing in front of crowds again. But like selling games against Lithuania and Jesus, Georgia yet again in League C is a much tougher sell than hanging around in League B. So you want to avoid relegation from, from that point of view as well. So that's at stake. And I also think that these games are important because while I would agree with Johnny that I've been relatively impressed by what Stephen Kenny and his Ireland team have done so far, I do kind of think that they need to win a game. I think that they need to, like, after this, the next games are World Cup qualifiers in March. And they certainly the need moment, to score. 
they certainly need to score. So I they need to they need to score at least a goal, mm. win at least a game. And also I think Kenny needs to use these three games to figure out what his best team is because I actually think we might be further away. I think in Kenny said we might be further away from his best formation and his best team now, having seen so many players play for him uh, across the couple of windows so far than he was at the start of his reign. So I think we need to like this time, what this time in 10 days time, say at the end of this window, I think ideally Kenny will be reflecting on a win to just justify all the good work that's gone in so far and also have a fair idea of his team ahead of the World Cup qualifiers. Well, let's talk about the team, Johnny. First and foremost, Shane Duffy is pulling an absolute banger in Scotland and it's hard not to feel sympathy for him really when it was a dream move that's turning into a real-life nightmare. Is he mm. still, Is he still part of Kenny's best team, not on paper, but based on what we've seen of him in the last month or so? Well, you're you're trying to read into Kenny's press conferences and uh, there are a lot of nuances to the way that he answers questions. And obviously this is these, you know, virtual press conferences. He 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 um, he defended Duffy, um, but then kind of was sort of struggling for the next sentence. And uh, I might be reading into this uh, completely wrongly, but I, I honestly don't know. He says like he's he still believes in him greatly. Uh, I think Duffy's shelf life with Ireland is quite short. It's just a matter of when he'll be replaced, probably by Darrow Shea, I would imagine, um, who played against Spurs. I didn't see the Spurs game now, but he's, you know, in West Brom haven't, aren't having a great time, but who would you be more confident of at the moment? Um, I haven't seen the, to be honest, I haven't seen the Celtic games that, you know, but all my mates are telling me that Duffy is, is really, really struggling. I know he was dropped at the weekend um, and, it's that counter, you know, is, is the fact that he's playing relatively well for Ireland. And I say relatively well, he's still quite shaky on the ball and probably grew into his role a bit over the five games. Um, is he guaranteed to start? I think he probably will start, but could Kenny be brave and play O'Shea beside Egan, bearing in mind that he's already missing his left back? Uh, I, I, I have reservations about Duffy. I think he's, uh, he's, he's been our biggest goal threat for, for um, a long time, but he's, he plays very deep and he, he will give the ball away. He still gives the ball away when he tries to pass it out and uh, he's not in great form for the club. So I'd be interested to hear what Gavin thinks. I, I think he'll play, but I wouldn't be, wouldn't be certain. Gav, what the hell has been happening with Duffy and what way will Kenny go to your mind? Yeah, th- things aren't really working out which, for Shane Duffy at the moment. I would, like, I he hasn't been great anytime I've watched him and he's been heavily criticised by Celtic fans. I would leave in it a little bit with the fact that the team around him looks to be an absolute rabble, you know, and he mm-hmm. is... Because Celtic have been chasing games a lot of the time I've watched them and then fallen behind early in games, he has been exposed and dragged out of position. And, you know, Ireland, the Irish midfield will give him a lot more coverage than the Celtic midfield, which is currently just Scott Brown on extremely aged legs, you know. So I would leave it um, by that a little bit like that because I watched, Cel- I watched Celtic against um, Lille. Like they went 2 0 up and then dragged back to 2 2. I think that's a draw is a decent result. And Duffy didn't look great um, when when the game was open, but when Celtic sat in and defended that 2-2, he was really good at defending his penalty area. So I think that um, he's been poor. I think there are a couple of caveats to how poor he's been. And I think Kenny will stick with him for now anyway. I think he'll play against England. Uh, Kenny also said that uh, Duffy played the three games in the last month and then went and had like a dental operation and then was straight into an old firm derby with of very little sleep, it seems. So there was that. Kenny was given that excuse as well. So I think he'll stick with him. But at the same time, like in a year's time, I think we will be sitting here looking at Darrell O'Shea and John Egan as Ireland's first choice centre central partnership. Because I just think that I think O'Shea is a kind of a superstar in the making and is more comfortable on the ball than Duffy and in positions where Ireland will have to chase games. It probably offers a little bit more security at the back purely because they're very different players. Johnny, before we go on to other selection issues like the absence now of Enda Stevens at left back and maybe what you do with Aaron Connolly, just looking at the England friendly in isolation, when you consider what you've just said about feeling as though Kenny needs a win, do you pick a full strength team for this game or to what extent do you anticipate he will experiment? Uh, how important is it a result in this game alone, given it's the least competitive uh, officially of the three fixtures upcoming? I don't think there's I, I don't think the result is that important. He might need a win, but like what what Ireland are four to one to get a draw in this game. They are as I check the odds here, um 
to win the game, they're ten to one. So let's be realistic. You know, if they are to win a game, it's likely to be one of the two coming up rather than this one. Um, if Ireland lost this game two one and were competitive, nobody's going to be given out. It's a friendly game. It's more about. Uh, the the evolution of the team and interestingly that he you know made reference to the fact that we haven't conceded that many chances in games which was true and I thought you know the Finland performance away was was generally very good um, and it's just more about as Gavin said I, I don't think he actually does know what his best team is and it's probably more um, another step in the ladder to find out what that team is Ireland play well I think it's nearly more important that we score a goal in this because if we go one goal in six games um, as much as we're playing against a good a very good team in England we, we should be creating chances um, you know Denmark albeit in fortuitous circumstances beat them and we're not that far off Denmark or we shouldn't be that far off Denmark so I, I think we should approach the game um, with the view that the result is, is, is if not an aside it's not the, the be all and end all it's more about the evolution of this team it does need time to um Embrace the you know the strategy that Kel- that Kenny is trying to and the and the ethos that he's trying to inculcate in a set of players who were basically you know quite diffident for a long time playing for Ireland. So I wouldn't be all that worried about the result, but I'd be disappointed if we didn't score. Gav, coming back to you then in relation to selection ahead of this one, like a number of Kenny's first choice players, you got James McCarthy, Connor Howard, Robbie Brady, even Aaron Connolly, all of our goalkeepers, Jason Malumbi. Callum Robinson aren't playing a great deal of first-team football. There have been hints from Kenny, or there were during the week, as to an intention to rotate. And Cuevin Keller seemed to be somebody who might be in line to play, like he's playing third choice at club level. So all of this is naturally a concern. But with that in mind, does that force his hand a little bit to give some of his, let's say for now, first-choice players actual game time? Because they're not playing enough minutes at club level. Yeah, I actually think that that might be the way he goes. And uh, while bearing in mind the quality of the opposition, like Kenny was asked this week, would you consider experimenting against England given it's your first technically non-competitive game? And he made the point, well, we've been experimenting all along. Like he's used a kind of a farcical number of players really because of COVID, especially in the last, in the last, uh, (coughs) excuse me, that's it. Poorly time cop. Real partridge moment there. <laughs> no, but I think I think you'll see. I my hint, my hunch, even is that the likes of Harrahan and McCarthy and Connolly and these guys who are not playing at club level will will probably play this game. I feeling we might see Queevin Keller for at least a half because Kenny was drumming up, drum was talking about him during the week, saying how he believes he's ready to play for Ireland, just isn't playing at club level. And he was also put up for media this week, which is kind of rare enough for, like Darren Randolph would usually do media during the week. So the fact that Keller was put up makes me think that we might see him play. And my other kind of frustration is the fact that Enda Stevens is injured because we're hopefully, or hopelessly short at left back. So I'm now, like Cyrus Christie was called in instead of him, who is a right back and not a midfielder, as as Martin O'Neill once tried to uh, make him. But So I think we might end up seeing Matt Hardy play left back and Seamus Coleman in at right back. Um, they played there against Georgia away last year, but Darley actually didn't play very well. It was, well, no one for Ireland played very well. Kenny was interesting talking about it, saying that if we play 4-3-3, he doesn't think that Darley and Coleman could play down the right wing. But if we played a 4-2-3-1, he thinks they could. Um, and we've kind of more or less switched to 4-2-3-1 now because it protects the defence a little bit better. So, uh, it's kind of frustrating not to be able to see them down the right wing because I expect them to play in either fullback position. What's the story with Ryan Manning at the moment, Gav? I know looking at Swansea or Johnny, even if you want to come in there, have you yeah, seen Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm the same. I'm wondering. Um, he's made one appearance for Swansea, so uh, to the best of my knowledge. So it, it's disappointing because he was in the last squad and I was like half hoping he might get game time against Finland. Um, doesn't. It's not a great sign because I think, in fairness to Kenny, he does like balancing his teams and it looks virtually certain and it looks absolutely certain, really, that we're going to have a right-footed player playing left-back and it's probably not a great sign for Manning. Now, the fact that he's been kind of, he was out of favour before his move and he's been basically cold in terms of um, appearances might be that, but uh, it is disappointing. I thought I, I thought he was the obvious one to come in as much as he does seem to like Christy a bit. Is Darty the guy then? With that in mind for you, Johnny, start Darty on the left just for these couple of games, see how he gets on, kind of filling a gap more so than looking towards the future, really. Yeah, um, pretty much. You know, it's uh, I, I, you can 
sometimes playing a, a right-sided player on the left, if you obviously remember Dennis Irwin did it really well, it, it can be okay, um, particularly if you can dovetail well with the left-sided uh, winger and you can kind of make runs that suit him and, and, and play that way. I'm not, again, I'm not really sure who Ireland's front three is, is going to be or whatever the, the, the two attacking players are going to be, but just because of the lack of options, um, Coleman Played quite well, I thought, against Man United at the weekend. He seems to be playing well at club level. Um, and it's 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 likely, I think, that it'll be him and Doherty, but on opposite flanks, not as we saw them in Gibraltar. Gav, what about the forward situation? Because obviously we've uh, been grieving the retirement of David McGoldrick. We hardly knew him. And he did seem as though he was going to be an integral part of what Kenny was trying to do with this team. He certainly was integral when we saw him play and was a big loss when he was absent. There is obviously no space to deploy Aaron Connolly in his favourite position. Um, Do you see that as a a live option for Kenny for these upcoming games? Or do you anticipate that maybe due to a lack of options, Connolly sticks to the left and Kenny looks at somebody else to front up in the kind of nine position? Yeah, like like just to give like the thing that shows how um, how short Ireland are up front is like the last three games we had. David McGoldrick, Shane Long and Sean Maguire started up front. None of them are in this squad. I think oh, two and a half, three weeks later. Obviously, McGoldrick is retired because oh, he'll be 35 the next World Cup. You can understand why it happened. James Collins has been called up to the squad, um, which is, I, I don't know, some people find it slightly underwhelming. In fairness, he's scoring goals. Like He scored five times for Luton this year, which is you know none of our other strikers are really scoring goals. I think he'll probably start with Adam Ida. I think he's I think he's going to ultimately going to make Adam Ida his starting number nine if he hasn't been um, trending that way already. He did say as one of the ups, upshots of McGoldrick's retirement that it allows Connolly to play more centrally. Um, is he going to get two strikers into the same team? I'm not sure. So maybe he tries him as a number 10 off Adam Ida, but I would like to see Alan Brown play. Like We haven't seen enough of Alan Brown and he was fantastic off the bench in Slovakia. Um, it's just, again, so frustrating for the manager that Brown and McGoldrick formed like a quite a fruitful looking partnership uh, up front. McGoldrick would drop off and Brown would uh, would uh, run on in the last half hour in Slovakia, and we're literally we're never going to see that again, which is which is really really disappointing. So you might see that we may see Connolly play like as a number ten or centrally because, like Johnny just said, like if Matt Doherty's at left back, he's a right footed player, so he'll be almost making you know underlapping diagonal runs. So maybe you want like a conventional left footer like Robbie Brady or someone out there on the left to to keep a bit of width. So you may see that. But um, I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see if Aaron Connolly does get a run centrally because he does look like our best striker in, despite the fact that he actually hasn't scored yet. Johnny, your thoughts on David McGoldrick? It, it felt like a blow when it was announced. I think everybody was caught a little bit off guard, even though Kenny had sort of intimated that there was a possibility of this happening a couple of months back or even a few weeks back. Um, but it was one where I think everyone had roughly the same reaction, which was like initial shock and then realizing he's 32 now, but as Gab says, we'll be pushing 35 when the next World Cup comes around. He's had a short enough international career. Um, and while I wouldn't remotely question his dedication in the green jersey or anything of the sort, he, he found out later in life than most people that he had an Irish connection at all when he was tracing lineage of his birth parents and so on so maybe it was a little bit more easy for him to step away and, and focus on his club career did you have any real qualms with that it's, it's kind of hard to i think when a guy is is his age and playing in the premier league and doing well to be there yeah like not not in the slightest um you know his his goal scoring record for ireland was poor but uh, he was a vital player for us and you know his all-around play i did like a lot and as gavin was saying the way he um the way he played in that Slovakia game, dropping in and Brown kind of replacing him in, in forward areas and they dovetailed very well and that did actually look like it might work but he's gone now and I've kind of come around to the, the idea that this is actually a good thing because it just does accelerate these players like the more the more you look at Conley and I and Ida they need they do need game time they've 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 a long way to go yet to kind of be um these these starting strikers um and if we were continuing with McGoldrick, given the fact that he's, you know, running out of time and obviously running out of legs, and um, that means that they might be necessarily waiting a bit longer. And 
from his perspective, obviously, he wants his place at Sheffield United. Kenny alluded to personal reasons as well. I don't know what they are, um, but absolutely no issue with it. I was taken by surprise, but um, the more the more you think about it, this is good. Um, again, as as Gavin was saying there, I, I I find it hard to pick who's going to be up top here. I I, I could definitely see Connolly starting in the central position because uh, that's where he wants to play. Um, I, I don't really think he's that suited to playing in wide areas. I think he makes the wrong decision a lot. And I think he's, his instinct is so um, governed by scoring goals. Uh, and it was interesting that he apologised after the, the Finland game because he, his decision-making was terrible, really, really bad at times. And I don't really mind about that because I think um, the fact that he's, he's in these situations is far more important than what the final decision is. It's kind of um, you know a bit like a team creating chances but not scoring. I wouldn't worry so much about that. Um, I think he's definitely more suited to playing centrally but if, if if that does happen does does Ida fit in then does he necessarily go with um you know maybe Odauda and Robinson on the flanks um we will need some defensive cover so that's a hard one to that's a hard one to weigh up but uh I, I think he could well start Connolly in the center. Yes Johnny says Gav it does feel as though Connolly plays like a striker even if he's on the left wing like instinctively he is very much a, a front man and to be fair, he only ever started playing on the left for Kenny's under-21s. I don't think he'd been tried there at club level at all. So it is relatively new for him. One man who he played with uh, at the 21s when he was playing on the left, and it was really to accommodate this player essentially, was Troy Parrott, who mm. has sort of disappeared from the conversation for the moment simply due to injury. But it is an option. I mean, when he, he's, he's kind of regaining fitness now at Millwall. Uh, to my knowledge and listen if he starts to score even a handful of goals every few months uh, you'd imagine that he'll have every chance of becoming the focal point of this team despite the fact we're not really talking about him now mm, yeah no I mean I think Parrot only really needs to play games at the moment to get into the squad at least like Kenny he, he's been injured I mean he was picked in the very first squad back in September um, because actually McGoldrick was injured for the first game so Parrot snuck in and Parrot has pretty much been injured since you know he's hardly played and Kenny did um, reference him at the squad announcement when he was asked about McGoldrick and said that Parrott was actually, uh, would actually be in the under-21 team. But he did that unprompted, so he's obviously in his thinking. So Parrott's hardly played a game. Millwall didn't really want him called up, to be honest, but he's in the 21s team. But no, he will be. I mean, Kenny really rates him highly, and he will be uh, an important member of the senior team if he can only just get fit and get a few games at Millwall. But he's not, an, he's not a number nine. Like I mean, you might see him... Again, to go back to like a four-two-three-one, like or something in uh, in that general area, you play him as a number ten, or you know, actually one of Parrot's best games for the twenty-ones was off the left uh, in that uh, second half against Sweden and Talas. So um, again, Edith sounds like like the out-and-out striker, and all these other guys often do some of their best work centrally. Although, as I said, Parrot is maybe an option an option out left, but unfortunately not one for this international window. The problem we're going to have, we need to hold the ball up here. We, you know, and this has been an issue for both of these players, particularly Ida so far, because you saw him after his goals against Preston when he came in and against Man United. It was just completely, it was like going from, you know, secondary school to the, the real world or whatever. It was a completely different ball game. And that that's going to be a challenge. Maybe he's going to look well. Um obviously we need pace in behind, but we do need somebody who's going to make intelligent runs and will um have the ball stick to him. So I'm not sure what choice is going to make there. Parrot is the one that, um, without you know, um, making a very crude repeating oneself joke to do with a parrot, um, he does need game time, and I I don't know where his best position is. I I I know Gavin says he's not a number nine, but, um, I don't know if he's a number ten either, and he's he doesn't really strike me as a player that necessarily wants to play wide. He's ultimately a goal scorer. He's just really really good in front of goal. So, um. With these three, maybe Afalabi to an extent, um, obviously Obafemi, who, who's probably going to come up a bit short. It, it, these, there's so much reliance on these players, and these one of one or two of them fulfilling his potential because Kenny is referenced that in his press conference. He's so much faith in the strikers coming through, but um, we do absolutely need one or two of them. If not, we need two of them even to deliver. We might have been better stocked in an alternative universe, Gav, with. Two players that will be lining up for England this week. Mm. Um, how do you uh, contend with that on a personal level, emotionally, when you see Declan Rice and probably Jack Grealish uh, starting or featuring against their um, previous international teams, let's say, on Thursday night? 
I just hope the FAI use pregame as an opportunity to finally present Declan Rice with his 2019 <laughs> FAI Young Player of the Year award. Um, Jack Grealish obviously has already picked up his under-21 Player of the Year award from 2015, so he obviously has his crystal, so he doesn't need to be presented again. Ah, look, I mean, I probably made my peace with it by now. I've, I've, watched, I've seen the pictures of Rice uh, talking out in England kits and so on, and, and like, Grealish is amazing, you know? I mean, he would... <laughs> it is... It is sometimes difficult to think as to how good he would have been for Ireland and how good Ireland would have been as a result of him being in the team because like, he's good enough to start for England now. I don't think there's any doubt about that. It's just a matter of Southgate fitting him into the team. I've probably made my piece of this. Like, you wonder what else could have happened. Like Maybe Martin O'Neill could have been um, given, capped these guys earlier. But like even if we capped Rice in that Moldova... like The, the thing that was held against O'Neill is that he didn't cap him in that Moldova game in 2017 left him out and then he played the few friendlies in 2018 and then and then uh, then fecked off but the rules have even changed since then you know so now if you uh, you can even play in qualifiers and switch once uh, once you played in those games when you're under 21 which which rice would have been so yeah you might you can kind of lose your mind wondering what if but I I think I've made my peace with it but if either if either or both score on Thursday night I may have to reassess with my psychiatrist just how far I've moved on <laughs> I'll give you a call Johnny, I do, I do think the argument um, regarding like having not capped these players and tied them to uh, Ireland is kind of nonsensical, really. I think it's a football manager argument, as in the PC game, when in reality players have agency over their own moves and decisions, and like it's not the case that you can just drag a guy into a box and he's Irish qualified forever. Uh, there's every chance that had O'Neill uh, tried to cap Grealish in particular that for a competitive game or. Um, that, like that Grealish would have been like look I'm, I'm going to take my time to, to mull this over and eventually made the, t- the same decision anyway it, you, that became a saga even when Grealish was playing for the 21 so obviously he had an eye on, on playing for England and probably felt himself that his ability would allow him to do that at some point but how do we or how do Ireland rather prevent similar situations from happening in the future like when you look at some of the talent on the books in the 21s now I think Will Smallbone from Southampton is a little bit of a different story uh, in that he's he's quite openly <laughs> this sounds familiar, but he's quite openly like declared for Ireland definitively. Um, but even down the line, younger guys again. What does Kenny do? What do the FEI do to prevent future Grealishes and future Rices and future Gav Cooney crises? Yeah, and that that psychiatrist meeting is just <laughs> absolutely preying on my mind now. I can't get out of my head. Um, the the whole, I mean, the fact that the this, the news kind of agenda, the news stories in some respects in the press conference was led by the question about to Kenny about Rice and Grealish. I mean, this I I I see absolutely no point in asking Kenny, and I don't know who asked the question, but like this is, this I, is I it was I asked the question. Was it okay? That's great. <laughs> so the person who asked the question, right? Well, I don't see I don't see what Kenny's supposed to say there, and I think it's kind of like um. Kind of like Roy Keane at the moment. Roy Keane's stuff about like at the weekend, the, the the penalty and all that. It's like, why does this really matter? Like Roy Keane is not really giving you a proper analysis of the game. The the Rice Grealish thing just doesn't matter. And Kenny's he, Kenny doesn't have any answer to that. He he's, they're not playing for his team, so we have to get on with it. The prudent question, obviously, is what do we do in the future? Um, and Gavin's point is is very correct there about in terms of you know the rules change and all that. I don't think it's fair to cap players just to basically entrap them. Um, and you know in terms of the value of Rice as a player, um, you know, he's definitely a more valuable commodity playing for England than Ireland. So issues like that, he changed his mind. You know, I'm not a big fan of what he did, but I, I don't think this is going to be a big issue under Kenny. I think everything with Kenny will be, you want to play for us. I don't see Kenny like pursuing Bamford or anything like that, even though we could badly do with him. I think it'll be bringing players up through the underage and essentially you're either with us or you're not. And, uh, you know, we, we are building something here and Smallbone will be part of that. Um I, I just I, I just I've gotten I've gotten on with it. I love Grealish as a player. Not not sure Rice is actually quite as good as maybe we thought he would be as well. You know, he probably has his limitations. In the in the holding midfield role, he'd be great for Ireland. And it is kind of a little bit a little bit difficult watching him sing God Save the Queen considering he wore the Ireland jersey, but it is what it is. Um and you know, 
if he were playing in, in Lansdowne Road, I think he'd rightly get jeered and booed. It's part of the game, but um, I think going forward will be fine. I, I think the the days of us, you know, capping players at under twenty one level, um, you know, at the detriment of of our own home players is gone. I think we're 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 building up from the 15s, 17s, 19s, 21s. Uh, English based players want to play for Ireland. That's absolutely grand. But I I think it'll be more and more and more Irish players coming through and very much Irish players of um, mixed heritage or whatever you want to call it is going to be the norm but the, the reliance on kind of players with um, coming from England I think will be less and less mm, and just to jump in there like Kenny was uh, Kenny like I asked him like what can you do in the future to stop this and he spoke in general terms um, but like more interesting was what he told Eamon Dunphy last year and he said that basically if Rice and if there was if there was a better relationship between the underage national managers and the senior manager then these lads might have been fast tracked in faster and he reckons they would have stuck around like you never know I'm not I'm not so sure like I mean they're born in England and you know they have a lot more they're good enough to start for England and therefore they can make a hell of a lot more money out of their career to be honest yeah, the, the feeling was as well that Grealish was was probably always kind of um, I, I've spoken to I, I spoke to some Ireland player who would have played with him underage and I think the feeling was that you know he'd probably end up playing for England um, but th- that's that's the point that, that like it was so dysfunctional the way the whole thing was set up and I, I do firmly believe now that we have um, like a pyramid structure where it's kind of from Kenny's team down but right down to the 15s they're all sort of you know basically reading the same Bible and they, they want uh, things to be under the same sort of direction and the same philosophy and that will extend itself to you know constant interaction between the managers who would probably firmly believe in where we're going and you know not to, not to go back in the John Delaney era but just that succession of managers where it was like throwing a, 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 a manager on an exorbitant wage whose sole function is looking after um, the senior team and the 21s becoming you know something of a joke really you know I, I can't even remember any Ireland under 21 results until Kenny got the job because um, nobody cared uh, now that's completely different and I don't really see this scenario present itself very often Gav, give us your impressions of what's going to happen over the next 10 days or so, beginning with Wembley, albeit it's hard to anticipate when it is, after all, just a friendly. I don't know. I mean, I expect Ireland to uh, play boldly. I think we'll play pretty well. I can see us losing the game just because England have better players. But look into the final Nations League games. Like Ireland should really be targeting wins in both of those games because Wales, uh, we're playing Wales away, but there's no crowd. Ryan Giggs isn't there, Aaron Ramsey isn't there, and there's a doubt about Gareth Bale being there. And all but Bale were in the Wales squad for the Dublin game, and Wales were disgracefully bad. Like, they were appalling. So we should be we should be targeting a win there. And uh, Bulgaria are, in football, Irish football parlance, no great shakes. Those kind of <laughs> numbers in Dublin, but we should have enough to break them down in Dublin. So really, like, we should be... Like, there's been a lot of good work happening. I know I've talked about we don't really know our best team, but that's mainly because the players are all of a kind of a similar level. Like there's not a massive drop off um, between, between players. So you could say we have the squad depth there. Things are trending in the right way. I hope that we'll get the results we need. I, I would, uh, I would be optimistic of two wins in the Nations League. Nice one. Johnny, do you share that optimism and can you incorporate a couple of tips into your predictions, please? Yeah, I, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think we need to be targeting wins in those games. Um, you know, this whole issue of home and away behind closed doors, it makes absolutely no sense to me that there should be any advantage to Wales playing in Wales on a pitch that's more or less the same as the pitch in Dublin. Um, same altitude, same climate. So home and away uh, doesn't really matter. And as in spe- speaking of no great shakes, neither was was any great shakes at all in the games against us and Wales are sort of there for the take and, and I think as much as I said the England game the result isn't necessarily that important I think in the three games there's going to be a serious hunger and um, a little bit of an edginess really that we at least win one of them and I think we should be definitely targeting winning both in the England game I'm going to go for a valiant draw at 4-1 to one. Um <laughs> which uh, we do major in draws, you know, and we've we've drawn our way to greatness throughout the years without, like, how many games we actually won against proper opposition. The odd one got a lot of valiant draws, something like a, a one-all, maybe a two-all, but four to one on the draw. And uh, I can't believe I'm going back to this, but Duffy to score a header any time is 14 to one. Um, what was that stat that I think Nathan Murphy put it on that... In the last 20 internationals, only one Ireland striker, namely the one that isn't there anymore, scored a goal. Um, staggering mm. stuff. Yeah, absolutely staggering stuff. And um, 
we've even spoken about this at League of Ireland level. So many clubs are desperately, desperately looking for a striker, and there's definitely a question mark: Why are strikers in um, so so demand, and why are they so um, you know rare? But in any event, we still have Duffy. I think he'll probably play. We will have corners, and at fourteen to one, he's a great threat. So nothing has changed at all. I'm predicting Ireland to draw and Duffy to get a header. I love it. Yeah. Johnny, Johnny, thanks a mil for that. We'll catch you again soon. Thanks, lads. Gavin, thank you, you as always. Thanks, Gavin. Thanks as well to Kathleen McAmee for joining us earlier for the Katie Taylor chat. This has been The Punt brought to you in association with Willie Hill. Remember to bet responsibly, bet responsibly, and visit donlouis.net on how to do so. Until next time, mind yourselves, take it easy.